Welcome to the Sympathetic People podcast. The podcast by sympathetic people for sympathetic people. Today, we're talking about knowing stuff. So, since you recently got back from New York, and um, New York is a lot like Athens, we're going to talk about <laughs> any excuse, right? Um, today we're going to we're going to attempt to uh, to have some readings from Plato, um, and have a little bit of a discussion about that, just like a really informal discussion about knowledge and claims to knowledge and and whether they are justifiable uh and attempt to tie that in of course to current affairs and more relevant things than athens ancient athens uh so socrates uh as probably a lot of people know he was sentenced to death by um by the athenian court and plato some years later uh and plato often used socrates as a mouthpiece in his dialogues as i'm sure most people know um, one of the many things that, that Plato put in Socrates' mouth was an apology, which is Plato's speech that he gave at the court. Um, and, you know, famously, instead of trying to convince them to spare his life, he just kind of went on a little bit of a, of a tirade. Um, and I want to just read a couple of little bits from that. So after talking about the fact that um, he had been pronounced the wisest man alive by the oracle at Delphi, um, and he was a bit miffed by that. He didn't understand why. Uh, he goes on to talk about his investigations, like trying to work out why this oracle would, um, would have said such a thing. So he says, Why do I mention this? Because I am going to explain to you why I have such an evil name. When I heard the answer, I said to myself, What can the god mean? And what is the interpretation of this riddle? For I know that I have no wisdom, small or great. What then can he mean when he says that I am the wisest of men? And yet he is a god and cannot lie. That would be against his nature. After long consideration, I at last thought of a method of trying the question. I reflected that if I could only find a man wiser than myself, then I might go to the god with a refutation in my hand. I should say to him, here is a man who is wiser than I am, but you said that I was the wisest. Accordingly, I went to one who had the reputation of wisdom and observed him. His name I need not mention. He was a politician whom I selected for examination. And the result was as follows. When I began to talk with him, I could not help thinking that he was not really wise. Although he was thought wise by many and wiser still by himself, and I went and tried to explain to him that he thought himself wise, but was not really wise, and the consequence was that he hated me. And his enmity was shared by several who were present and heard me. We might consider that unsurprising. He goes out and points out to this guy, you know, as wise as you think you are, so people don't like him. Uh, so I left him, saying to myself as I went away, well, although I do not suppose that either of us knows anything really beautiful and good, I am better off than he is. For he knows nothing and thinks that he knows. I neither know nor think that I know. In this latter particular, then, I seem to have slightly the advantage of him. Then I went to another who had still higher philosophical pretensions, and my conclusion was exactly the same. I made another enemy of him, 
and of many others besides him. After this, I went one man. I went to one man after another, being not unconscious of the enmity which I provoked, and I lamented and feared this. But necessity was laid upon me. The word of God, I thought, ought to be considered first, and I said to myself, "Go, I must, to all who appear to know, and find out the meaning of the oracle." And I swear to you, Athenians, by the dog, I swear. <laughs> Sorry, I love that. Uh, for I must tell you the truth. The result of my mission was just this. I found that the men most in repute were all but the most foolish, and that some inferior men were really wiser and better. I will tell you the tale of my wanderings and of the Herculean labors, as I may call them, which I endured only to find at last the oracle irrefutable. When I left the politicians, I went to the poets, tragic, dithyrambic, and all sorts. And there, I said to myself, you will be detected. Now you will find out that you are more ignorant than they are. Accordingly, I took them some of the most elaborate passages in their own writings and asked what was the meaning of them, thinking that they would teach me something. Will you believe me? I am almost ashamed to speak of this, but I still must say that there is hardly a person present who would not have talked better about their poetry than they did themselves. That showed me in an instant that not by wisdom do poets write poetry, but by a sort of genius and inspiration. They are like diviners or soothsayers who also say many fine things, but do not understand the meaning of them. And the poets appeared to me to be much in the same case. And I further observed that upon the strength of their poetry, they believed themselves to be the wisest of men in other things in which they were not wise. So I departed, conceiving myself to be superior to them, for the same reason that I was superior to the politicians. At last I went to the artisans, for I was conscious that I knew nothing at all, as I may say, and I was sure that they knew many fine things. And in this I was not mistaken, for they did know many things of which I was ignorant, and in this they certainly were wiser than I was. But I observed that even the good artisans fell into the same error as the poets, because they were good workmen, they thought that they also knew all sorts of high matters, and this defect in them overshadowed their wisdom. Therefore I asked myself on behalf of the oracle, whether I would like to be as I was, neither having their knowledge nor their ignorance, or like them in both. And I made answer to myself and the oracle that I was better off as I was. And he goes on a little bit, but I still think it's interesting. <laughs> Uh, this investigation has led to my having many enemies of the worst and most dangerous kind, etc. So he talks about why, essentially why he's been brought before the court um, and ultimately will be executed, is that he just goes around town pissing people off by asking them to demonstrate their wisdom to him and then essentially showing them that they know bugger all that they think that they know. Um, <laughs> But I think that this is a, you know, I think it's interesting for, for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, one thing is that I think, I mean, I'm having a lot of occasion to think about this with my, the current PhD student that I have and, and with the process of, of gaining expertise in a specific area just more generally. And I feel really strongly that one of the things, or like one of the most important things that one should learn during the course of a qualification like a PhD, you know, a higher research qualification, 
where you know the idea is that at the end of it you're one of the world's leading experts in some very tiny specific area of research that you have specialized in and therefore you're ready to join the ranks of the experts at large i think one of the most important things that you have to learn is like when you learn more and more about something very specific it should have a uh, corresponding demonstration to you that you really are almost completely ignorant about everything because what you get is you get the demonstration of of how much learning it is possible to have in a very very small area and thus you extrapolate that a little bit more widely realizing that learning you know is essentially infinite in all domains there's so much that you could learn about every little thing that you should have come to a realization of your own ignorance and therefore a development of some degree of humility. And I think that's an ideal situation. I think that's what Socrates embodies. But oh, yeah. um, perhaps you'd like to comment on whether or not you think that's a common well, outcome. I mean, it's, but it's fairly achieved, like, you know, in nowadays uh, time. I mean, I, I think at any time, actually, it was rarely achieved. And when it's achieved, it's achieved by somebody who is like, well, I don't know anything and neither, you know, do anybody else. So mm. then go around, piece everybody else, and then, <laughs> then you get executed. So I, <laughs> uh, like, I'm not sure that, you know, like one can argue, especially if uh, I think in the tradition of like Chinese philosophy, that Socrates' behavior is not actually uh, humble. Like, uh, humble behavior would be to acknowledge that he doesn't know anything and then to acknowledge that other people have expertise that he doesn't have mm -hmm. and then kind of be like, well, okay, I don't have to tell them about that. I don't have to go around and check whether they actually have. Mm -hmm. Because what he's actually doing is he's provoking them. And I mean, he was smart enough to understand that, yeah. that he's provoking them. And I mean, he's being like sarcastic, you know, about the whole thing, which is fair enough. But uh, I'm not sure if he, like humility is yeah. be the right word here. You know, I think that's a fair point. Um, I think that there's a great deal of arrogance in the way that Socrates expresses this whole thing. There's yeah, a, there's a yeah. kind of an epistemological humility, which is the acknowledgement of you know one's own lack of knowledge. But there yeah. is not necessarily a personal humility that's going along with that in Socrates' case. Yeah. I'm, like, I'm very sympathetic to his position. Yeah. I'm very sympathetic <laughs> to the position that you know, I don't know like much about you know, X. And when somebody else claims that he knows more than I do about X, like, I'm going you know, to investigate that. And both the time I will find out that no, in fact, like, we're either on par or he knows less or she knows less than I do about X. And then it's like, well, you're equally stupid, right? So <laughs> I'm really, personally, I'm really sympathetic. But, I mean, I'm not sure if that, um, I mean, as an idea, as like as a, an idea that is directed inwards, it's a good idea, right, to understand mm. the limitations of your knowledge. I mean, nothing can be better than that. And I think, you know, society would be better but we're yet to figure out the societal vehicle to communicate it to each other. Because just sure. because our society functions, just because, you know, like if you are concerned about your own limitations, because, you know, it's very hard that if you know that uh, you're lacking knowledge in many areas, then it's very hard for you 
do not feel bad about it. Mm. Do not feel that, you know, you basically can't act in certain specific ways. So that idea can very easily prevent you from acting and just, you know, uh, because our society is kind of evolutionary in many ways, right? Mm. People who don't have that idea will prevail and they will be, you know, mm. more successful than you. Yeah, so. no, I think that's an important point, and I think it's it's it just reminds me, you know, the word apathy, which is now associated with a sort of pass, you know, pacifist uh, inactivity. Um, the the roots of that word was, I mean, we now see it in kind of a negative light, but I think in the past it wasn't seen in such a negative light. Like in the the Hellenistic era, like just after. Socrates, you had all these different schools of philosophy in ancient Greece, and all of them were sort of claiming to be the the true heirs to Socrates's you know legacy. Um, and it's kind of the era of the sage in in Greece. I mean, I guess that goes back further, and it goes back even to the pre-Socratics as well. But what Socrates, um, what distinguishes him from some of the pre-Socratics is his obsession with ethics and his obsession with the kind of the good life, with how should you act as a human. Like, he's not that concerned about, you know, the nature of being or the nature of the universe or, or whatever, like metaphysics and things like that. He's more concerned about what virtue is and that kind of thing. And the schools after him, which are like the, you know, the Epicureans, the Skeptics, the Cynics and the Stoics, they're all about how what's the best way to live as a human um but their their goals there i mean i'm sure they have goals to reform society uh and that sort of stuff but i think it's more of the um like some buddhist schools as well the idea that if i achieve a high level of you know enlightenment for lack of a better word then that's the best i can do for bringing society you know for making progress at the societal level as well so they tend not to be politicians. Like Socrates, you know, he talks about why he never became a politician and all that, because he would have been corrupted and blah, blah, blah. Like he wouldn't have been able to maintain his integrity. Um, but yeah, apathy, the highest goals that these schools were aiming for and kind of the measure of the success of their philosophy, like they were all in these competing schools, was their achievement of, you know, probably other things as well, but two particular um, virtues which are ataraxia which is freedom from suffering and obviously again there's a huge parallel with buddhism there um and apatheia you know freedom from passion um so they kind of considered that apathetic stance like not meddling and not trying to get too involved because I think pretty much all of them, in their different ways, acknowledged the uh, their own, you know, their lack of wisdom or their lack of knowledge. So their idea was that it's better to not be driven to interfere, like not just so that it's better to not interfere, but it's better to not have that powerful desire, that passion, to get too involved, because that way is the path to to suffering. So yeah, yeah. So there is obviously a sense of that, but then again, you know, people who have that drive strongly will overpower you, yeah. and then they will become, you know, the dominant figures in the your society, and then they will decide to be driven by them. Mm. So, <clears throat> I mean, like 
as an ideal, it's a great ideal, but only when everybody else embodies that to a certain extent, and then when everybody else, I kind of, you know, like, strong enough to not uh, be uh, damaged by, you know, not be not engaging and not uh, you know thinking that they know something or whatever sure. and still being able to act like mm. it's i mean like somewhat utopian but as far as the words are concerned you know the words like you know pathetic mm. can like was originally <laughs> yeah. a good word and now in english it's like it means you know bad things right uh, but also like melancholia, right? Poets mm. and you know painters in medieval times of like some sometimes after used to praise melancholia as like a thing that gives them inspiration. Nowadays it's like uh, basically apathy, right? Mm. So well, depression. I'd yeah, say, like, yeah. Mm-hmm, yeah. I mean, our our time is very concerned about being fun and joyful mm. and like all kinds of a happy and. I mean, happy in kind of, you know, like, radiant way. It has to be bombastic. It has to be, like, you know, sun's always shining and shit. <laughs> so, yeah, our society is society of play, you know, in a lot of ways. Yeah, and I think it's a society of consumption, you know. Like, I don't think that, I mean, that's clearly a, a cliche to say that now, but it's a, a society in which we're always looking to get more and more and more. And pretty much all of these ancient traditions, which are concerned with the reduction of suffering and maybe with the achievement of apathy, uh, are in some way minimalist traditions or minimalist schools. Yeah. Like even the Epicureans. Like now when we talk about an Epicurean, we, you know, we think about hedonism, we think about... I mean, even hedonism, we think that that's having everything to excess, whereas really all that is is saying that pleasure is the highest good. But like the Epicureans, who were kind of hedonists in a sense, they were saying that in order to achieve the most consistent good, be happy with less. You know, they were very clear that you need to derive your pleasure from the simple things. Like Epicurus you know, perhaps in an anti-Pythagorean move, but he ate, I think he ate only like beans and rice pretty much, you know, like, um, so no, well, you, no, if you're eating beans, you're not Pythagorean, you know, Pythagorean, exactly. Anti, Anti-Pythagorean, yeah. Uh, Anti-Pythagorean, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, okay. No, I was just making a joke there, but, um, because I can't remember if it is only beans and rice that he ate, but, um, yeah, obviously the Pythagoreans had some sort of taboo against eating beans, maybe because it makes you fart in public or whatever, I don't know, but. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Was it who was it? Was it actually Pythagoras himself? Now I can't remember until he he was killed. There was some Pythagorean who was killed, supposedly because he wouldn't he wouldn't cross a field of beans or something. No, I think I'm mixing up my stories. But he was being chased by soldiers, and then he wouldn't violate one of these really bizarre precepts of Pythagoreanism, and so he was caught by the soldiers and killed. I can't remember what the exact story is. Unhappy. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> They were, in some sense, all minimalists. Like the cynics, obviously, they were like, you know, itinerant, mendicant, wandering, you know, homeless, living in a cardboard, well, there was no cardboard box, but, you know, Diogenes was living in a in a clay pot, basically, you know, like have nothing, but accost people, you know, they would go to the marketplace and just kind of abuse people about how ignorant everybody was, you know, obviously the Epicureans, but the skeptics. I mean, I'm very sympathetic with the sceptical idea, which is that to reduce suffering, um, don't get attached to any kind of positive thesis. 
So like the idea for skeptics is that because any um, sufficiently skilled rhetorician, anyone who's good enough at arguing, can argue equally strongly for you know a particular proposition and its negation, then you better not get attached to any positive thesis because it can be refuted. All positive theses theses can be refuted, and therefore the skeptics you know role is only to refute but never to re- erect a positive thesis. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean that's clearly a dead end. I feel like you know, all those traditions the only uh, they only progressive in a way when they have you know all of them present. Mm. So when you have you know Stoics and Epicurus yeah, yeah. and like all of those guys like you know uh, skeptics like when you have them all together in the mix they then yeah. they they have something to say. But when you just have one tradition, it seems to be very like degenerate in a way yeah, because. Yeah. Only doing that, you're not getting anywhere. I mean, they're only good in opposition to each other. I think that's really very true. And I think that another really striking thing about a lot of um, ancient philosophy, but I would say not. it's not contrary to what you were just saying, but the interesting corollary of that is that I think that the periods of greatest gains in terms of, of knowledge and wisdom seem to be periods in which there's a lot of public debate going on. Yeah, yeah. So you only but at the same time, if you take, if you take Western uh, philosophy, like, you know, if you take Kant, for instance, mm. Kant's idea was that your philosophy should be made so that if everybody embodies it, it's, you know, going for the best. Yeah. So... But if everybody embodies skeptics' philosophy, we're not getting anywhere. Yeah, no, I mean, skepticism is very much a product of that polemic environment in which, you know, you are, everyone's engaging in these public arguments. And I think when we're outside periods like that, although I think that we're, we're sort of, like, since the Enlightenment, we've, in a sense, been in that kind of scenario again, because... The idea is that, it's obviously not always the case for many different reasons, but that all ideas, all, you know, axioms and everything, everything's up for grabs, you know, like that is the, there is a fallible, well, we haven't got to fallibilism, I haven't talked about fallibilism in this episode, but there is like a sceptical axiom at the core of so-called enlightenment values, I think, which Mm -hmm. is that any, any given idea is subject to refutation. There are no sacred cows. And that's the sort of foundational idea of, of modern science, you know. And I think the way we get out of this impasse of scepticism is by adopting, as I've said before on the, on, the, on the podcast, but I like fallibilism because fallibilism, you know, absolutely permits the erection of, of positive theses, you know, and also says, posits that there is truth, like there is a fact of the matter, there is a way that the world is, and that we're not in a sceptical impasse in the sense that we, um, we can't make any progress towards that, because the very process of critical engagement with any given attempted explanation refines that explanation and takes it closer towards the truth. So it's kind of like it is the progressive form of scepticism. Like you don't really believe 100% any given thesis or hypothesis, but you see it as a tool for getting closer to the truth, you know, inch by inch. So you do believe that their progress is possible. And as you know, uh, for me, that's the most 
rational, I guess, explanation of the way science works or should work. We're not too attached to any given thing. Everything is subject to refutation. But well, in principle, in principle, yeah. for sure. In, in actuality, we get really attached to oh, certain things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially like scientific method, we're really attached to it. And then like this is the only way, all the other ways are bullshit and just get stopped if you're not doing science. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I, but I don't think anybody, not, I shouldn't say I don't think anybody, but most people who say that kind of thing couldn't really define science, I think. And oh, yeah, they, they probably won't, yeah. And, and can't, like, we've talked about this heaps, but, you know, any attempt to really demarcate science in a hard mm -hmm. way from all other systems of knowledge acquisition, which also work in terms of some sort of fallibilistic conjectures and refutations model, is, I think kind of doomed to failure there are there's unique methodological stuff about quote unquote science and that's essentially the experimental you know sort of hypothetical deductive method um but but what can what can claim that you know socrates was doing experimental science in a way mm -hmm. he was you know he had his hypothesis and then he went out and he was asking people yeah. he was basically trying you know with trying out his hypothesis and you know checking out whether Absolutely. it's true or not and like in some sense, he kind of made that. So. Yeah. No, I, I, as I said, I think all systems of knowledge acquisition kind of work in this way. And, and as you know, I think that evolution in general, in a sense, works in this way. Yeah. We no, don't have to go there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't have to that go there very... now. Um, but there's a certain kind of controlled experiment that we do in modern science, which is... It is a, it's just a species of criticism. Like it's just a, a way of criticizing a hypothesis, but it is slightly different from what was done in the past. Although yeah. there are lots of overlapping, um, you know, ways that people were investigating things and criticizing ideas in the past. And people were certainly making predictions about what would happen, you know, predicting an eclipse or predicting that the sun, you know, the angle of the sun and different things going back thousands of years and then testing their predictions against actual observed phenomena in a way that's very, very akin to, you know, what we do in, in modern science. So, yeah, I mean, I think that trying to split that out from everything else is, is pretty arbitrary. Um, before reading the next little bit, the other thing... Yeah, what I wanted to say yeah. also is that, uh, yeah, if you're only aware that you don't know anything and neither do anybody else, mm -hmm. then, you know, you are very... Uh, much shielded from learning from mm. other people because in your own view you're kind of like they don't know anything I don't know anything so I think you have to be you know you have to be vigilant in that way that you acknowledge that you know your own ignorance mm. you are very aware of ignorance of others but you're also aware of the you know other parts of that that you do actually know something and they do actually know something sure. so it has to be like you know holistic in a way like you have to acknowledge both parts the your knowledge and your lack of knowledge and the same for others and i think i'm not sure if that's present in socratic idea well i think i think that's deeply present to be honest i really think the idea at least with plato's socrates is that he goes like not necessarily just in this apology but in the dialogues in general like he goes to some person and he genuinely wants, I mean, he's always expressing this. He's always saying that I really hope 
that you're going to be able to tell me because I'm really, really, really want to know what virtue is or I really want to know what knowledge is or whatever it is that they're talking about. Um, like he has it's a, like Stephen Crowder, you know. It's like getting out to campuses and saying, you know, I, I don't believe in gun control. Prove me wrong or something. Like, you know, change my mind. Like, yeah, not really. Like, the chances of you actually changing his mind on gun control are close to zero. Sure. Like, he's doing it to provoke the argument. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and that's a, a very, very common thing. And whether we don't know what the historical Socrates was really doing. I mean, Plato's Socrates is claiming, although he's often sarcastic and he's often provocative in lots of ways, but he's certainly claiming that he wants to be taught and he's kind of disappointed that he is able to undermine other people's arguments like he's he's frequently hoping uh for an argument that he will not be able to but he feels kind of honor bound he's bound by his own um whatever uh loyalty to the process to undermine every argument that he is capable of undermining and it just so happens that he's capable of undermining pretty much any argument um but i think what's really interesting about a lot of the dialogues is that there are lots of very strong theses presented in them so there will often be multiple positive theses by different characters in the dialogue and also their refutations um and often they end in in a kind of impasse and nobody really feels enlightened at the end of it. But, you know, some, you know, I've heard some uh, specialists in Plato talking about the idea that the audience is also meant to be, like the reader of the dialogue is meant to, like Plato is not going to declaim. Like you never know what Plato thinks, right? Because Plato is not a character in his dialogues. And he's never going to declaim, unlike Kant or many other people, even though, again, there's a lot of skepticism within Kant, of course, um, but he's not going to declaim that this is the way it is. He's going to give a bunch of ideas and potential arguments that undermine those ideas. And then it's up to the audience to be engaging in that process and, you know, testing the ideas for themselves and criticizing the ideas for themselves as well. So it's, it's an active, you know, an open argument. And in that sense, it's a lot like, again, a lot of other ancient philosophy, I think. Where, and you can think of a lot of Eastern philosophy in this way, like sutras and, you know, koans and, you know, Taoist um, riddles and all that sort of stuff. And, and Heraclitus's little fragments and things. A lot of them, it's not entirely clear what is meant. Like, it's not made explicit. And I don't think that's because these authors were completely incapable of expressing themselves. It's because I think they wanted to write something that made the audience think and kind of got the audience into that critical mode, which they believed was the only way that the audience member or people in general were going to actually gain any kind of knowledge or understanding was through critically engaging with, with the text. Well, I mean, if that's the goal, then, yeah, okay, fair enough, especially... <laughs> Well, nowadays, you know, it's very apt that you're being critical of all the knowledge that is given to you from all the sources. Mm. But if somebody says science science proves you bad, then you also have to be critical about it like, from that. But, I mean, it gets really tricky, right? Because uh, when is something is outside of your area of expertise, which is pretty much everything, yeah. <laughs> and you are getting a bit of knowledge about that, 
then how are you going to interrogate it? Like you can't really do that because you're lacking knowledge mm -hmm. that the person has. And if you couple it with the presumption that uh, the person's understanding of that uh, whatever thing is also not ideal, then like what you're going to do, are you going to take it knowing that it's very likely to be somewhat false, or you're going to reject it knowing that it can be also somewhat true and you're unable to judge it? Like, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, it gets quite tricky. Yeah, I think it is tricky, and I think it's really tiring <clears throat> to to um, genuinely engage with everything that you read or you hear. Like, engage with it to the extent that you're going to be able to find out whether it has any merit or not. Like, you kind of have to let things yeah. in so that you can understand. Like, in the end of the day, especially with, you know, new things coming in, like a freaking blockchain, mm. right? Get your own understanding what's blockchain mm. currency, what's, you know, how is it going to change the world. You can read all the experts, but they don't really agree. Mm. Then you have to get your own understanding how it actually works, mm. get your own predictions about it, spend a lot of time getting your head around it, and then in the end of the day, making your decision. It is a lot of time, <laughs> but like, I don't, is there a shortcut? And, you know, mm. it's just one of those things that we're having now, you know, yeah. like climate. our life changes in so many ways sure. that, you know, climate change, climate social change. net. Yeah. Or I think climate change would be this, you know, diets and stuff. A classic uh, issue where most people, and it's probably the best policy in these sorts of situations, is a kind of epistem epistemic humility where you are aware of the risk of um, you know, running afoul of the Dunning-Kruger effect and you just end up accepting what the experts say or what you are told the experts say. You know, yeah. For most people, they're not even reading what the experts say. They're just reading yeah. the popular 97% um, you know, of scientists agree kind of stuff. And then, mm -hmm. then there are you know, so-called climate change skeptics out there, which have very, very interesting and quite rigorous arguments backed up by a huge amount of data, which doesn't make them correct at all. But if you start really engaging with the issue beyond accepting the kind of, you know, status quo um, consensus idea, then it becomes very, very confusing and suddenly you're aware of how much energy it would require for you to have a defensible position on the issue. So some of the, and again, I'm not, I'm not denigrating this, but some of the wisdom of deferring to the experts to the extent that you're aware of what the quote-unquote experts really believe um, is in terms of reducing cognitive loading and, you know, because you just don't have the energy to go into the massive depth on all of these different subjects and because at the end of the day, you have to believe, you have to trust that there are people out there who devote their entire lives to this, that they have a degree of expertise that you don't have and they may still be wrong. In fact, they, they are definitely wrong in the specifics if you're a fallibilist, but they might be right enough that what they've got is the best available um, you know, knowledge or understanding of the time. And so it's best for you to just surrender to that 
rather than yeah at the end of the day i think your your larger hope rests in just evolution and like humanity at large for sure that you know all the wrong ways of living will be weeded out just by the fact that they will be unsuccessful unsuccessful yeah but i think with with any evolutionary process when you are exploring the adjacent possible you know when you're doing new things you are solving old problems and creating new problems as you solve old problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that it's okay. a it's a never ending, you know, iterative process. Which yeah, there's well, one whole no... that it's never ending. Yes. <laughs> yeah, um, but I don't see it. Like I think any suggestion, it's like fitness maximization. You know, the idea of having the perfect phenotype or whatever. Yeah. That I think that anyone and a lot of people do indulge in that kind of thinking about evolutionary processes in general. And I think it's very, very problematic because even if you had achieved, you know, despite all of the constraints and contingencies and whatever, you had achieved the perfect phenotype for this particular environment, well, that environment's going to change because the environment is, is just as dynamic as your phenotype, but it's not, you know, co-varying in a one-to-one manner. So that rug of perfect fitness, you know, is going to be pulled out from underneath you when the environment changes and you're suddenly going to have new problems. And if you're a high, you know, classically, if you're a highly specialized organism that, you know, you have the perfect phenotype, which is specializing in feeding on, I don't know, certain species of eucalyptus leaves, which nothing else can eat because they're highly toxic to most things. So you have no competition. Well, when those eucalyptus trees, you know, die out or whatever, when people come along and make farmland in your eucalyptus forests, you're going to have a really, really hard time adapting to that new environment because you're too invested in your specialist, you know, specialist lifestyle. You can't switch to some other kind of leaves or, or whatever. So, yeah, it's never ending. It's never ending until it's over. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope that it's never over for, for life or for humanity, I guess. All right, well, speaking of over, I will read this second quick... Um, uh, thing, if I can actually find it. Right. So he, he talks about his kind of duty to... So he talks about why he doesn't... Uh, he wouldn't become a politician. And basically it's because he has a duty to truth. And he refers... Like he talks about God. And in this particular translation, it's with a capital G. And I think in a lot of cases, he's just talking about the, the imperative of truth. Um, so that he, he's like driven by, by that. And he feels that he can't abandon that under any circumstances. And of course, this is supposed to be his great defense speech. But as we know, in the end, he is sentenced to death. And he really isn't trying to defend himself. He explicitly says, if you said to me, um, go away, stop doing what you're doing, and we won't kill you, I would say, bugger that, I can't stop what I'm doing. You know, like I have this imperative. So... So he talks, he, he then draws a parallel between his, um, his duty to the truth and his duty during the Peloponnesian Wars, like when he was fighting against the Persians. So, strange indeed would be my conduct, O men of Athens, if I, who, when I was ordered by the generals whom you chose to command me at Potidaea and Amphip- <laughs> Amphipolis and Delium, um, sorry for the pronunciations there, remained where they placed me, like any other man, facing death. If I say now, when, as I conceive and imagine, 
God orders me to fulfill the philosopher's mission of searching into myself and other men, I were to desert, to desert my post through fear of death or any other fear. That would indeed be strange, and I might justly be arraigned in court for denying the existence of the gods, if I disobeyed the oracle because I was afraid of death. Then I should be fancying that I was wise when I was not wise. Sorry, I made a real hash of reading that ridiculously long sentence with lots of punctuation. So hopefully the meaning is clear. Um, For this fear of death is indeed the pretense of wisdom and not real wisdom, being the appearance of knowing the unknown, since no one knows whether death, which they in their fear apprehend to be the greatest evil, may not be the greatest good. Is there not here conceit of knowledge, which is a disgraceful sort of ignorance? And this is the point in which, as I think, I am superior to men in general, there's that humility, and in which I might perhaps fancy myself wiser than other men, that whereas I know but little of the world below, I do not suppose that I know, but I do know that injustice and disobedience to a better, whether God or man, is evil and dishonorable. And I will never fear or avoid a possible good rather than a certain evil. So, <laughs> so yeah, I made a hash of the first bit. Sorry about that. But um, I don't think there are right pronunciations of Greek names in English yeah, anyway. Yeah. So I'm pretty sure you're fine with that. Well, it wasn't just that. I think the rhythm of the... I, I got lost in that sentence because yeah. it had but so I mean, the many... Gist, the gist is clear. <laughs> the gist is clear. It's just that... He, he thinks that it's better off dying, yeah. you know, with his conviction than changing his conviction to the wrong ones. Yeah. And that he thinks he's superior to everybody else because everybody else thinks that they know shit and he knows that he doesn't. Yeah, but I think the key thing, I think the key thing, I mean, those, that's all absolutely correct. But he is suggesting that to be afraid of dying is itself a form of arrogance, um, is itself a form of unjustifiable knowledge claim. And I think that that, again, is at the root of um, a lot of this philosophy, which is suggesting that a sceptical attitude is, in fact, a way of reducing suffering. Because we suffer partly because of the fear of our own death, which we assume is going to be a bad thing. And he's saying that you don't have that knowledge to know that, you know, don't fear this thing. You don't know what that's like. That could be like, you know, unremitting ecstasy for, for you know, forever. Um, so it's like find some sort of peace uh, equanimity through your skepticism i think is a strong you know like undercurrent to what he's saying there yeah fair i mean that's a great idea in principle but again like i mean if you're if you're taking like death as like you know dying as you know an event like a single thing right as a you know thing itself not what leads to it not how it happens but the actual mm-hmm. fact that you stop leaving yeah. then yeah fair enough but if you take into consideration all uh, like all that leads to it mm. like i don't know all day or execution yeah, or whatever suffering pain, yeah, 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 totally. yeah yeah then fear of death becomes you know quite apparent because i don't think what people uh, are afraid of is the you know them stop Leaving, I think what they're afraid of is the suffering that leads to it in larger part, not like altogether. Obviously, no, people are afraid that you know they will they won't continue living because they're afraid of like how that's going to feel, how what that's going to be, right? You know, just in general. I think there's a real fear. 
I, I mean, I, I think it's very true that people fear suffering, but I think that people do independent independently of that fear death as well. And I think yeah. there's some, there's a fear of annihilation, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, which is kind of a revolutionary in a way. So, yeah, it's, you know. absolutely. But, you know, we've talked about this before, and I, you know, <clears throat> I've talked to you about how sometimes meditation can be very confronting. And uh, you've said that you don't really have that experience. I mean, I liken it to the experience of, of taking psychedelics or. Uh, I mean, it's. I don't just liken it to it. I think it's pretty much the same thing. That you know, you have that that period sometimes or often before you let go, where you're struggling not to let go, and you don't mm -hmm. you don't really know necessarily. You just feel like quite alarmed and tense, and you're like, Arr! you know, and you don't really know necessarily unless you've had this experience or you've reflected on it or whatever what you're actually struggling against. But I think that you are struggling against, you know, these are kind of cliche terms, but some sort of annihilation of the ego, of the self. You know, you're struggling, you're like, but if I leave that ongoing process in which I normally live, which is the self, am I ever going to be able to come back kind of thing, you know? Like, again, it's, it's far more inchoate than that. It's not even that articulate. It's just some fear of letting go of that. And I think that the same exists with meditation, and I think that that is essentially the same thing as the as the the pure fear of death in the abstract. Um, mm -hmm. Like if you take away all the suffering and everything, obviously. And I think that's what the Tibetan Book of the Dead is sort of about, um, and particularly the Timothy Leary, um, Ramdas, Ralph Metzger version, the psychedelic experience, is about how um, transcending the self is essentially dying. Um, mm. it's the same kind of experience as dying. And again, I'm not sure if I've ever said this on the podcast, but I think I've said this to you before. Like that's also how I see samsara in a kind of secular Buddhist sense. You know, like if you take it away from the metaphysics of, you know, actual belief in reincarnation, samsara is kind of like the process of life in which we are you know, we, we're traversing a sort of landscape up and down in terms of experience. And at peak experiences, we are transcending ourselves for short periods of time. So even when we're not meditating, even when we're not um, doing, you know, psychedelics or explicitly trying to transcend ourselves, we often are trying to transcend ourselves by doing something that's really engaging for us. We're trying to mm. get into a flow state you know, whether we're, you know, skiing down a mountain or trying to write a novel or playing an instrument or whatever it might be, we're trying to get a bit of respite from that, you know, that ourselves, basically. We're trying to get beyond that and just be a sensorium, you know, just be in the moment. Um, and again, I think that's very akin to, you know, what we fear. It's the interesting thing, like we want it so much but at the same time, we're really terrified of it, especially when it becomes really explicit. <laughs> Shrugging at me. Um. <laughs> yeah, I mean, fair enough. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> but I'm not sure, like, what, uh, as in, like, you know, from... Uh, this Socratic uh, 
know, defense of him of his, what you can take as a lesson. Because I mean, yeah, not being afraid of dying, not being afraid of death is a good lesson. But um, at the same time, you know, just willingly going there and being like, yeah, you should not be afraid of death. Mm. Therefore, I will go and die. It's kind of a, not the best approach, because you know, kind of a why. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. I mean, it's all good when you're 70 years old in a society where you know you probably couldn't have hoped to live. That you know that was a pretty good innings, I guess, in, in yeah. Greece in the you know fifth century BC. I'm sure a lot of yeah. you know noble people lived longer than that. Um, but yeah, he probably felt like he had achieved whatever he could achieve, mm -hmm. and he was obviously. Like it, still, it still has to be balanced out by the desire to leave. It's yeah. like you know, it's it's the same thing as with knowledge, right? You have to have both uh, halves to uh, prosper. So you have to be, you know, willing to leave and willing to do everything to continue leaving. But at the same, at the same time, you you have to be, uh, you have to let go of the fear of death because that will allow you to live better yeah, and that will allow you to be more present. Mm -hmm. But what will make your presence, you know, valuable is your desire to be present. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, I would I wouldn't do what Socrates has done. Like I understand his rationale, but I would be rather like, yeah, okay, guys, I'm done with this, and as soon as they let me go, I will go to some other city and continue doing what I wanted yeah. to do. Yeah. Like what? What the hell, right? I mean, but the fact that he did what he did, and I guess we have fairly good reason to believe that this is historically accurate. I mean, there's also the Xenophony, uh, Xenophon uh, text of the trial in which Socrates is, is um, even more arrogant than in the, um, than the, in the Platonic dialogue. But we have... It's like, you are all fools. You are all fools. I will die, but yeah. you are all fools anyway. <laughs> but in, in some sense, like, he... We need... Oh, not we needed or whatever, but the fact that he did what he did is one of the things that makes him such a potent his, historical slash almost mythological sort of figure. You know, and then the, the other dialogues, like the Phaedo, where it's actually him talking about death. He, you know, he giving his sort of sermon while he's getting ready to drink the hemlock and, and all of that. And um, I mean, I think that was profoundly influential on Christi on Christianity. Um, oh yeah. I mean, not just the whole, you know, Jesus. You know, obviously that you know, a, a God becoming embodied and dying for the sake of the people and things like that is not original to Christianity and not, you know, and it predates Socrates. But I think that, well, certainly in the Phaedo, they talk a lot about the immortal soul. And, um, you know, Socrates isn't really afraid of dying because every strong argument he can um, put together suggests that the soul must be immortal. So, mm. you know, and I think that's, was all obviously very uh, influential on the development of, of, of Christian theology. Of course, they're coming out of a background where they already take the immortal soul for granted as well. In a way, like, you know, if you go into Judaism, yeah. it's not necessarily there. Mm -hmm. Because there are certain, like, you know, you have uh, several souls in Judaism, and one yeah. of them will be, because, I mean, it's kind of, you know, the Egyptian tradition, right? Sure. And one of those, like, Nishama, will die with the body. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, it will be actually rotting with the body. Mm -hmm. And so it will be dead as soon as the body has rotten away. And then there are like two other souls. But there is at no point 
your soul continues uh, living like any of those three in some some kind of a good way. But it goes you know, to Sheol, that, right? It goes to Sheol. Yeah, it will go to Sheol, yeah. yeah. And then we'll be waiting until the end of the day. Yeah. Days when all, you know, we brought... So kind of we know that in a different way. Krishanti says that as soon as you're dead, if you were good, you will have, yeah. like, everything will, everything will be amazing. Which actually brings me to a question which I'm somewhat curious your answer to is, uh, uh, you know, some specific, uh, like, illusion or some specific, you know, quote-unquote untruth, right, uh, that can help you uh, to let go of fear of death mm. is helpful or, you know, whether we go all Socrates and it's like we can't sacrifice mm. truth and we better be afraid of death. Mm. So if you're... You're not bringing bringing up your kids with thinking that you know they when if they die they will go to some place that is good and therefore they're not that afraid of death. Whether that's better than to have them uh, being raised up and in thinking that no, there is actually nothing after the death, or we kind of don't know. Yeah, well, I think that's a big question, and I think that that gets a kind of pragmatism as a as an epistemological foundation right that you know truth you know there might be some kind of ultimate truth that maybe science is investigating but that the the truths of the human experience and and the sorts of truths that we should be most invested in discovering are pragmatic truths like they are the the ones that we hold because they are most effective at reducing suffering and helping us to achieve our goals. And, and they're kind of true in light of the fact that that is what they do. Like they're true because useful. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that like all of the major schools of, of epistemology, and of course I don't think we even had to go <laughs> into epistemology to talk about this idea. Um, I think there's a lot of truth to it. You know, I think that you can believe certain things which may not be true, <laughs> but that's a tough word. They may not be true in terms of they're not part of, you know, noumenal reality in the Kantian sense. You know, they're not part of the actual bedrock reality in which we live, um, but believing them could be very beneficial. I mean, I think that's inarguable. Like, I think that religious belief can have a lot of benefit for people, but it has to be belief, right? It has to be, and that's why there's so much in, in religious traditions, and particularly Christianity and, and well, the Abrahamic religions, about surrendering to faith and, you know, yeah. like surrender is such a big thing because there are certain things that you're not to question because questioning them would undermine their utility, you know, like yeah. that, that's the purpose. Yeah, that is very sad. I mean, there's a, there's an insidious side, of course, and that's what your you know new atheists would um, would only concentrate on. There's an insidious side to that kind of dogma, which accepts no challenge and shuts down all arguments against it. But I think in its origins, in its function, it is there as a therapeutic tool. It's there to, and you know. Of course, anyone can easily say, you know, as it, as the church 
evolved certain dogmas they started to use to control people and do all sorts of nasty shit with and you know dogma has that very unpleasant side to it as well mm. but i think having a set of axioms that are you know everything's going to work out kind of thing you know um you know trust in the will of god that's very wise in a way because there's a great deal about our circumstances and about the world that we can't change and we can't even begin to understand you know and that's kind of that's what the god concept is for to some degree you know it's i mean it's for lots of things obviously but one of its things is that it is the organizing principle behind everything that we we can't comprehend and so mm-hmm. just accepting that is of course potentially a very very therapeutic act I mean, and in a different sense, like in a secular sense, someone like Sam Harris would say um, that, you know, give up the illusion of self, give up the illusion of free will in order, and he wouldn't say it like this, but in order to be truly free, you know, give up the idea that you are the author of your actions. And that's actually very therapeutic because then, you know, you are accepting reality as it is. Of course, there's the danger again of becoming apathetic. With, with exactly. Or is the, the danger of you just being like every time you do something that you know is reprehensible, you're like, ah, that wasn't me. You know, I will, you know, continue on because I'm not master of my own deeds and yeah. so whatever. And that's the big moral concern that people have, like the that the concept of free will is essential to morality, and that's yeah. Well, that's and as we know, experimental actually, you know, data yeah, shows absolutely. that it's a very valid concern. Yeah. No, I think yeah. it is a valid concern. You know, whether it's a valid concern because we're talking about Christian societies in which this, you know, research was done and in which Sam Harris is really doing his thing. Um, And really the purpose of free will in the uh, religious framework, which, you know, built these societies and built, you know, which all our philosophical and cultural baggage comes from. Um, I mean, all is a big statement, but you know what I mean? Like the influence is, is profound within those traditions that is the purpose of free will you know is take responsibility and do the right thing you know i just feel like you know slavoj zizek take on christianity yeah so he was saying that he is a christian atheist so Mm. he doesn't he you know he doesn't really believe in god per Mm. se Mm. but he was uh he's big on the early christianity ideal freedom Mm -hmm. that you know previously you were all you know, you have a burden of, you know, your ancestors' sins, you have the burden of, you know, your tribe, you have the burden of, you know, societal norms and everything else. In here, you are kind of, you know, like, you know, God's will, that God's will, you know, do something and that you can't, cannot really undo and you can't battle with God's because God's are God's, right? Mm-hmm. While in here, in Christianity, you're given the freedom. You're like, okay, all your sins have been abolished, like previous sins, right? Mm-hmm. You see, you're only responsible for yourself. Mm. And God gives you a freedom to be evil if you so choose to. So you're, you know, given all the freedom to be whatever you choose to be. And just, you know, you are responsible for yourself and kind of a, like, that's it. Yeah. So just do your best, you know, in your best understanding. Yeah. I mean, I think people... like, this is way more powerful and this is way more productive than... Uh, you know, Sam Harris's and whoever's his clique approach to free will, because I see that, you know, 
I mean, we're not even getting into, you know, the actual scientific basis for that, even mm-hmm. if, like, whether it exists or not, for all we know, he's claimed that, you know, there is no free will, but whatever. Uh, that is a damaging approach. While the idea that you are responsible for your own, you know, deeds, but you are not, uh, you know, dragged down by something that you're not in control of. I think this is great. Like, this gives you full freedom and full, you know, kind of a ability to act in the best way you can. I, you know, I completely agree. Uh, and I think that... So I, I do think that free will is an, is an important moral concept. Um, I also think that all of the arguments that I have seen against free will fail to be convincing on kind of all levels, and we don't need to go into that. We've talked about it a bit, I think, on the podcast in the past, and we could certainly do a podcast devoted to it in the future. But, um, yeah, I think that, you know, we've been speaking about pragmatism a little bit, that there's such, there is real pragmatic value to the idea of free will. Uh, so if, if you have two theses which neither of which are um, really uh, stronger than the other in terms of the evidence base supporting them. So say, you know, we have free will, we don't have free will, but one mm-hmm. of them has a lot more pragmatic value than the other, then the most rational approach is to provisionally accept the more pragmatically valuable one. Now, Someone like Sam would obviously say that, oh, but the evidence is so strong against free will. Uh, but personally, I don't believe that. Um, yeah, I don't believe that either. So, you know, I think in Kant, he considers free will um, like one of the antinomies of pure reason, which is that these are the sorts of questions that they can't really be answered from our perspective, like in any kind of metaphysical sense. Um, mm-hmm. And so in order to make a knowledge claim about them, you would be making a knowledge claim about noumenal reality, which in Kant's framework is just impossible a priori. Like you just can't, we can't know anything about that. And he has a series... I guess that's why he was called Kant, right? It's just like... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And he has a series of these sorts of, of questions, which he basically says, you know, we can't resolve them. So anyone claiming to have, you know, strong knowledge one way or the other can sort of be disregarded um, on principle, because that's the kind of question that we can't possibly answer. And I, you know, I have some sympathy for that idea, Um because I think they are really difficult questions to answer. I also think they're really fascinating questions that, again, I wouldn't want to use that kind of sceptical approach to say, oh, well, there's no point arguing about this and whatever I think about it is fine. Like using scepticism to get to some kind of relativism where it's like, well, you can have any belief on this subject, therefore. Mm-hmm. Like I think it's worth having the, the, um, the rigorous arguments about issues like that. And I also think that even though, again, in some basic way, it's just obvious that we have free will, you know, in terms of our basic experience, 
Um, mm -hmm. And again, Kant, you know, we can only act under the idea of freedom. You know, so if you didn't have, if you genuinely didn't believe you had freedom, according to Kant, you wouldn't be able to act. Again, people like Sam would, would argue with that. Um, but I think the most common sense view is obviously that we have free will. And so you can say, oh, all of that um, philosophizing, all of that debate and argument about free will, that's just a storm in a teacup. That's just philosophers getting really, really worked up about things and, and making complex arguments where there's no need for a complex argument. And there's kind of some truth to that as well. But I think that it's for those people who are interested in engaging with those arguments, it's important that they are engaged with because I think otherwise the bad arguments win, you know, like otherwise the, yeah. um, so it's it, like the process may be self-sustaining, like it may be a storm in a teacup. It's like a closed system in a sense. It's a bunch of academics arguing with each other, but stuff does come out of that um, sporadically. Yeah. And if you don't engage in that, you have no complaints to make when the bad arguments kind of take over. So I feel yeah. like, you know, I hate the word responsibility in this context, but, you know, I kind of feel a responsibility to engage because there are such bad ideas there. Yeah, fair, um, fair. But, but what's interesting that, you know, in the societal debates, kind of, you know, in the just like way people talk about it, the arguments that are more convincing, whether they're true or not, they always win. It's like, you know, that's, you know, the thing with postmodernism, right, is that they, they have constructed the arguments that are very hard to unpack, to mm -hmm. attack, if you're, mm -hmm. you know, don't know enough to do that and same thing with free will you know just the argument you know it's like because the argument goes against your uh preconceived idea your own intuition and we're so um uh, like often see how scientific ideas go against mm -hmm. our preconceived ideas that we take that as a justification for the argument. Sure. We're like, we feel like there is a free will, but we, like there is no free will. And that kind of makes it even stronger because it's like, ooh, you know, the reality is not the way we think yeah. it is. Yeah, and, and, and you're just naive. And, and yeah, you know, yeah, if, yeah, if, you, yeah. if you just accept the myth of the given, which is like Wilfred Sellers, uh, and, yeah. uh, and it is a real problem to accept the myth of the given. Like this is, this is a... A thing you know reality is not as we perceive it um, yeah you know however it's again this all or nothing thing you know you don't have to go from reality is not as we perceive it to everything that seems counterintuitive is true you know mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. you have to be very very careful wading through all of that you know complex philosophical territory and you know, one of the things i wanted to say about the first reading um from today is about this, you know, the last people that he goes to are the artisans, you know, the craftsmen and things like that, the, the experts in particular, you know, in making things, basically. But um, then because of their expertise in that particular area, they think that they have expertise in all these other areas. And I sort of wanted to say, or wanted to ask you if you think that might be a parallel with, say, I don't know, certain popular science well, scientists who are the kind of apologists or prophets of science, but not just science. I mean, it could be any area, but where they yeah. are, you know, using their authority because they have certain qualifications or certain expertise in one area to weigh in on kind of everything. Yeah. And not just to weigh in, because I'm, you know, I'm a big fan of weighing in on everything, obviously. Um, 
but I don't. <laughs> so I'm aware of the potential hypocrisy of what I'm saying, but it's the claim of authority that is the issue. You know, it's not... yeah, yeah, yeah. Like if you're good in some in one thing, you feel like you're good in everything. I think you know the uh, uh, it's like when you make a framework that works in your specific area you tend to then perceive the world through that framework. And in a lot of ways it works, right? So if you're, say, an engineer, and you're very good at, you know, engineering things, and you, like, build, you know, like, very uh, complex contraptions from whatever, and, uh, like, you tend to, you then start to see mechanisms everywhere, you start to see systems everywhere, and then you start to see life as a mechanism, and then you start to approach it as a mechanism, and then you're like, whoa, it works. And uh, then, you know, like, if you're evolutionary biologists like us, right, you yeah. start to see evolution everywhere. For if sure. you're a theologist, you know, you start to see, or like, you know, rather, you know, scholar of mythology. Yeah. You will study myths and you see the, you know, like, primal myths everywhere. And yeah. then you start to see the life itself yeah, as, like, the narrative that people tell to themselves as yeah. a myth, right? Yeah. So I think it's just because reality is so damn freaking complex yeah. that you can find, you know, as long as your approach is coherent and it's kind of, you know, systematic in a way and it works in the closed systems, mm. you can apply it to the world and see that it will, at largely, it will, it will work and you will, you can just then, you know, given a choice to just close your eyes to, you know, parts when it doesn't work because mm. you're like, well, those parts are just illusions, they don't exist or they're not important. Yeah. And definitely i see a lot that people who are good at something like playing chess for instance or playing magic the gathering i've, I've seen that, that actually a lot that you know people who are really good at some particular game they will approach life as a game which yeah. is a valid approach mm -hmm. in, in certain sense but then they will think that being superior in you know a chess gives them certain superiority and you know certain qualification to judge other people's moves mm -hmm. In, in life because they're like yeah your move is not efficient you know you're not strategizing enough you know you're like you should be you know considering this and this and this it's like it's it's funny nah. i'm i'm reminded of um of stravinsky's jibe uh against prokofiev um you know prokofiev was a great chess obviously a great pianist and composer but a great chess player and um prokofiev would often criticize stravinsky's um you know, they had kind of a bitchy relationship and he would criticize Stravinsky's piano music in particular and he once referred to Stravinsky's neoclassical piano works as like pockmarked bark but um Stravinsky in one of his you know many pithy remarks um when he was talking about Prokofiev said Prokofiev embodied the you know the maxim uh, or the truism uh good at chess bad at life um, <laughs> so I guess he'd be sort of suggesting that doing that thing where you apply chess to life is is not a successful strategy. But you know, yeah. I think you're absolutely right. Of course, I think there's another slightly different way of looking at what you just said, which is I think in some sense more the way that I come at it. You know, I mean, I'm I'm a big hobby horse of mine is not confusing map with territory, as you know. So not confusing any system of describing reality, whether that's in words or whether that's in, uh, you know, mathematics or whether that's with a computer model of some kind or whatever. Not confusing that with reality as it in fact is. But I also do believe 
that reality is a coherent um, structure in some sense. And so I believe that things, and, and particularly, you know, things like engineering and mathematics and, and, you know, biology and, you know, when you are in a rigorous way studying some particular element of reality and breaking it down and building it back up and understanding how things work, I think that the metaphors that you come out of from that sort of practice are going to apply to other areas of reality precisely because reality is just one thing. Um, so things are made in similar ways, even at very different levels of reality. You know, so cells do do something that's akin to computation, as does the brain do something that's akin to computation. Um, these are like machines because they have many working parts that interact with each other in machine-like fashions and etc. So I think that there are kind of general characteristics of reality which we discover by working in some fairly specialized area but then when we turn our attention to other areas and apply what we've learned there it maps on not purely because our head is just full of maths or evolution or engineering or whatever it is and so we see that pattern wherever we look but it's partly because that pattern was always there and we discovered it with our particular um, you know, mode of studying reality. Yeah. We can take it too far, clearly. And we, yeah, and yeah. I mean, like, you're right in the way that if we are, you know, if we have like certain uh, like field of study, then, you know, it, it obviously you know, is uh, reflective of reality in some sense. Mm. So then, yes, you know, if you take, if you, you know, study that field way and like good enough, then you can go back to reality and you will see those, you know, patterns in reality because they're there. That is very, very true. The trick is when you go into the other uh, field and say, hey, guys, you don't see reality mm. well enough. Because I've seen reality well enough, and you guys don't see it at all. Yeah. And I see that, you know, like, I mean, religion was doing it to science at some point, and science mm. is doing it to religion now in a lot of ways, you know. And, uh, like, you know, what science is doing to humane science, uh, mm. no sciences, humane yeah, yeah, studies, yeah. or, you know, mythology. But the trick is that, uh, as you know, we've been discussing, you have to recognize that A, you know, you don't know your own field well mm -hmm. enough. B, you don't you are completely ignorant of what those guys are doing. Mm -hmm. And you are totally ignorant of how reality functions yeah. in a larger way. And yet so, and yet, like again, everything just needs to be kind of balanced because you can as an outsider to a field with a different kind of expertise come to that field and see things that the specialists because they can't see the wood for the trees in some sense like they're too close mm -hmm. to the matter that they can't see it and that's why interdisciplinary work is so popular now and so productive and you know the way of the future and all of that is because people from different disciplines can bring different perspectives to each other's disciplines but mm -hmm. it's always this claim to some kind of overarching absolute knowledge that is the problem it's like, yeah. yes, you've got a fresh perspective. <laughs> yes, it's useful. But there are also a shitload of technical details that you don't know. You know, it's like philosophy of mind and neuroscience, you know, in some mm -hmm. sense. Um, although those are not new 
you know what I mean, it's not bringing a new perspective necessarily, but philosophers of mind have a great deal of understanding of the mind that neuroscientists might struggle to have working at the level that they're working at. But at the same time, the philosophers of mind don't understand the real mechanisms as well as the neuroscientists do. So when philosophers of mind come to neuroscientists, like working together, the idea is that philosophers of mind are doing this conceptual work um, and then as they are trying to um, translate their models of the mind to the actual physical um, you know, uh, systems that produce that model, then they are constrained by the expertise of the neuroscientists um, who are saying, oh, well, that's not possible because of this or that or whatever. Like, that's a clear violation of this or, or whatever. But also the neuroscientists are being influenced by those concepts and they're looking at the brain in new ways and then that's helping the philosophers to come up with new... You know, like, that ideal of interdisciplinary collaboration is incredibly fruitful, but... Yeah. As long as you don't say that others' approach is totally invalid. Exactly. And I guess that's kind of my, as you know, my biggest problem with you know scientist, scientific approach to you know religion, mythology, and everything else. It's just like they're not saying, "Hey guys, you know, you don't see this and this because you know you're just relying on those books and the world wasn't created five thousand years ago," which is a completely valid statement. No, they're saying that your entire approach is invalid mm. all what you're saying is invalid and basically you know earth is better without you yeah we can throw so, it all away yeah yeah and i yeah, think yeah, that yeah. that must come and it, you know in some people it comes from a very very considered um you know approach and and then deciding they need to take a very strong position and that the the bad outweighs the good or whatever but i think more often it comes from just a lack of real understanding. Like you can have a lot of intellectual understanding. You might have read a lot of the texts from this religion or that whatever, but there's a there's a lack of a kind of deep experiential understanding um, yeah. of the function of the really the wisdom that is encoded in all these traditions. And when you have, I think, an appreciation of that, even though clearly you know, a scientific description of the world and some creation myth don't map onto each other in any literal sense, and why would we expect them to? Um, that doesn't mean that everything that's not only part of the religion that that creation myth is part of, but actually within that creation myth itself is just something you should just ignore. You know, there can be some very, very interesting principles, um, and not only can they teach us they can actually teach us things about the world but they can teach us a great deal about the human experience and the way humans yeah. understand the world and at the yeah. end of the day that's kind of important because we're humans and you know we, we want to know how humans understand the world <laughs>